Long ago, the nation of Israel stood at a critical crossroads in its history. The nation had managed to uh, escape uh, oppression in the land of Egypt. Uh, The people that made up this burgeoning people had uh, crossed the Great Sea and had landed on the shores of a new country. They had traveled through the wilderness of that land, tested in so many ways. They found themselves facing material deprivation. They struggled through internal conflicts. They dealt with attacks from outsiders. But guided by the law of God and sustained by God's spirit, they had managed to develop a remarkable resilience and an amazing sense of national identity and unity. Now there lay before them an amazing new era of promise. They looked out across the Jordan River at the promised land beyond. And it was filled with such opportunity to take all that they had known, all that they had been given, and leverage it in an even more dramatic way for the purposes of God and for the blessing of people. But it was also the case that they faced significant challenges in that future ahead. There were issues within their life as a people already, but even greater issues faced them ahead. They would find their national unity and their character tested by encounters with alien cultures at a whole new level, with new economic conditions, with great spiritual dangers. And so it was at this critical moment in the history of Israel that their nation's leader, a man named Moses, called the people together and delivered what I guess you'd simply have to call a State of the Union address for his time. We read the whole text of that address in the biblical book of Deuteronomy. If you have an appetite for really sinking into it, go back and read it. Uh, in its entirety this afternoon. But the most important ideas, I think, at least the ones that are most salient for our purposes this morning, are recorded in the eighth chapter of Deuteronomy, and they can be summarized, I believe, in two crucial callings. Two particular callings of God to his people at this decisive moment in their life. The first one is simply this. Remember God, says Moses. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years, Moses said. Remember how he led you to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. In other words, remember that the journey that you have been on as a people as difficult, as challenging and testing as it has been in many places, is in order to refine you, to improve you, to strengthen you, to uh, build faith and character in you. And then Moses goes on and says, when you have eaten and are satisfied. And Moses is looking out and seeing the prosperity that he believes God will make possible for his people. But he notes this caution. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Praise him for this. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, and when you build your fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase... And all that you have is multiplied. Moses is issuing a prophecy that that living by the, the command of God is going to lead to this incredible experience of prosperity and blessing. 
and he's correct. But here's his concern. When this happened, be careful, for then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God. And you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, he says. For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. What Moses is saying, in other words, is never forget. Never forget, Israel, that it is God on whom your pathway to this point depends. It is God upon whom your prosperity in the present depends. It is God upon whom your potential for the future truly depends. Praise the Lord, therefore. Praise the Lord God for his grace. Thank him for his kind provision. Don't ever get seduced, as it will be so easy to become seduced, that you could ever have come this far or would be what you are now or can thrive in the years ahead on the strength and power of your own human ingenuity, your own uh, human creativity. Instead, acknowledge God every day, he goes on to say elsewhere in the book. Worship God every week. Look into his face again and again and again so you remember what justice and truth and beauty and goodness and kindness and the common welfare looks like. Do this and you'll retain your vision. You'll retain what's most essential for building this world into which he is leading you. But without this vision, you will become blind. Remember God. Be careful to remember God. And then Moses issues a second charge. Be a nation that reveres God. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, he says. Walking in his ways and revering him. Now, when Moses says here, observe God's commandments, walk in his ways, revere him, he is not giving three different instructions. He's giving one instruction stated three ways. This is a Hebrew pattern of rhetoric. The Hebrews, when they wanted to make an important point, would say it twice in two different ways. When they wanted to put a major exclamation point on something, they would say it three times in different ways, and the last way they said it was usually the key to the others. So what does it mean to revere him? This is what Moses is trying to underline. God is looking for a nation that truly reveres him. Not simply by putting his name upon their money. Not simply by looking in his direction on special holidays or when they're in trouble. Not simply by wearing a religious symbol on their necklaces. But by actually doing, observing what the Lord has commanded you. Walking in his ways through your life in the way he would do if he lived in your shoes. This is what it is to revere him. To live by his commandments, Moses says. And then Moses goes on to issue this immensely sobering warning. 
And it must have struck the people as a little bit of a downer at this particular moment because there seemed so much reason to celebrate. There were so many positive realities to the life of Israel. But Moses is looking far out into the future and issues this warning. And before hearing what he says to us here today and what he said to ancient Israel, you've got to remember who this man is. You've got to remember that Moses is not some carping critic or some depressing doomsayer by nature. This man is one of the founding fathers of the Hebrew people. This is a man who has wept hot tears, who has shed precious blood, who has built up big blisters, traveling and walking and longing and loving his people. And Moses desperately wants his nation to be all that it was called to be. He knows it can be. And so in the remainder of Deuteronomy, and especially in Deuteronomy chapter 5, which is where we find the Ten Commandments, Moses lays out God's glorious vision for Israel. Think about this with me for a moment. This This was the nation that God sought to establish. They're called to be a nation that put God first in their lives. And this was new. Most nations had these gods that were simply adjuncts to their national life, props for their national life. But in this nation, God was truly to be God. There wasn't even to be a king, a president. There was just to be God as the one that they followed above all. They would refuse to bow down to lesser authorities, whether it was money or power or sex or celebrity or politics, whatever it was, they were to serve God above all else. That's the first characteristic of this nation. Secondly, they're going to be a people who never trivialize God. Who never reduce him to a marketable property or a manageable idol used mainly to endorse their concerns. They will be a nation that is very careful not to misuse the name of God. They will not toss it about in vain exclamations. They will not invoke it in order to back their personal prejudices, they will be careful with the name of God. They will revere it. They are going to set aside one day a week to honor this God. They're going to make a statement in their calendars that God is that important, that they want a day a week just to focus again on him, just to rest in him, just to find the strength and the perspective and the refreshment needed to go back out into the workaday world again with clarity, in order to be able to represent him well. And this will be a nation where elders are profoundly respected and cared for, where the older generation is is honored for its contributions, is looked to for its wisdom and cared for. They will be a people who never take life wantonly. They will be a nation that reveres life and cares for life as no other nation perhaps ever has before. They will be a people who honors, who honors the, the vows that they make to one another, the commitments they make in marriage, the commitments they make to family, even when they're tempted to abandon them. And it was a rampant pattern in other cultures and societies to break these vows and to seek one's personal pleasure wherever it could be most conveniently found. But this nation would be different. This would be a promise-keeping nation. 
This nation will be one that does not take what is not theirs. They will not steal in any sense of that term. The more power one has, the more one would feel the responsibility to make sure they did not take advantage of that power by stealing, by taking what was not theirs. It would be a nation where private property was respected, where all resources were used in sacred trust. They will be a people who do not lie, exaggerate, or slander others, whose discourse is always governed by a concern to guard their own integrity and the reputation and integrity of others. This will characterize their nation's life. They will not be covetous as other nations were. They will not be envious, always grasping for what others have. But they will be a people marked by their unusual gratefulness, by their capacity to be content. They will take responsibility for working while they have the strength, he says elsewhere. They will not depend upon other people to do work they are able to do for themselves. They will care for the poor, the ones who genuinely do not have strength. They will steward the earth. They will show hospitality to strangers. They will demonstrate fairness and kindness towards those who work for them. In short, they will seek out the way of the Lord in all of their goings, humbly lifting up those who may have fallen down. This is God's vision for the nation of Israel. This is his dream, says Moses. He calls us to live in dependence upon his grace, upon his truth to shape our lives. And if we remember God, says Moses, and if we revere him by the way that we live, he will make our name great among the nations. A greatness not meant for our own pride, but a greatness that opens up the door to tremendous influence for us all, he says. He will bless us and he will enable us to be a blessing among the nations. But if we cherish our independence so much, if we come to care so much for our own private and parochial interests that we set ourselves up as God, making our own rules or failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day, then woe to this nation, says Moses. Woe to us, my people. For if you forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, says Moses, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Moses' sober warning. If you're a student of history, how many of you ever took history? Boys and girls, you will. More than you probably want to, but you'll take it. So important to look at history because we can learn from those who went before us by the good things they did, by the mistakes they made, 
history teaches us so much. And if you are a student of history, then you know how profoundly this story I've been telling you of Israel influenced the imagination and the vision of those people who founded this country, whose beginnings we celebrate on July 4th. No less a figure than George Washington, the first commander-in-chief and president of these United States, wrote this. It is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. John Adams, our second president and a signer of the uh, declaration that we remember on the 4th of July, also understand, understood how fully our nation's life depended upon our citizenry's ability to remember and to reverence God. This is what John Adams, the second president, wrote. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. In other words, we can't construct a government that can do what is required to build a healthy society if it's not bridled already, if people's hearts are not bridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution, he writes, was made only for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate to the government of any other. John Jay, the co-author of the Federalist Papers and the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, wrote this. The Bible is the best of all books, for it is the word of God and teaches us the way to be happy in this world and in the next. Continue, therefore, to read it and to regulate your life by its precepts. Don't regulate your life by the precepts that the court hands down to you. Regulate your life by the precepts that God hands down to you in his word. Joseph Story, a fellow member of the Supreme Court, man regarded as the father of American jurisprudence, declared this, there never has been a period in which the common law did not recognize Christianity as lying at its foundation. I verily believe that Christianity is necessary to the support of civil society because it's the faith, it's the moral precepts and the vision of life, the sense of responsibility before God that undergirds the capacity to build a free society. Finally, consider these very powerful words from Jedediah Morse, an early statesman and educator known as the father of American geography. He writes this, to the kindly influence of Christianity, we owe that degree of civil freedom and political and social happiness which mankind now enjoys. Whenever, this is the important part, whenever the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, our present republican form of government and all blessing which flow from them must Fall with them. I could supply you with hundreds more quotations like this. Hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of them. 
almost erased from what you kids are learning today in school, what they're teaching in our universities, is the memory of what our founders knew and believed, felt with such passion. Even the most liberal, the most religiously liberal or apparently irreligious ones of them, people like Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, if you could really read their words on this subject, they'd be branded by today's media as evangelicals. They would be, honestly, because of their incredible insistence on remembering God and reverencing his commandments and living them out in our lives. Oh, be very clear that the founders wanted no state church like they'd seen in Europe. They wanted no constraints upon religious freedom or personal freedom at that level like they'd seen in Europe. And they wanted nothing to do with the fusion of state and church. They took great pains to exercise hospitality towards people of a variety of faiths and even people who had no faith. The nation had to be able to embrace, embrace all those kinds of people. But their most sincere concern, their deepest worry, the thing that kept them up at night and writing when before it was convenient to write, What worried them was there would come a day perhaps when the people of these United States, like those people of Israel long ago, would stop living in dependence upon God. And they feared that when they stopped doing that, when they lost their connection, they would also forfeit the spiritual power and the moral fiber and the blessing of God that is at the root of our nation's life. They saw Israel's story in ours. We stand today at the crossroads of American life. And all of the clamoring is about the need for better policy. When I would suggest to you, dear friends, that from the lessons of history, our clamor ought to be the need for better people. For a different kind of people. For people with the character to confront the the needs of our times. With fresh creativity, strength, and resolve. Over the past 50 years, my lifetime, we have systematically purged from our public discourse, from our major academic, judicial, legislative, and artistic institutions, the idea that there are actually dependable, absolute standards on which human beings were designed and for which they were ordained. Many people have championed and they've celebrated this trend as the key to fulfilling human potential. Many people have seen this as actually important for fulfilling national potential. And yet in the last 50 years, alongside of all of the good things that have happened, Yay, God, for Twitter, you know? And uh, for so many of the conveniences of day-to-day life, I mean, thank you, God, for the graces we've enjoyed. But alongside of all of that, think with me for a minute. minute. We have seen a 560% increase in violent crime as we've thrown off the shackles of religion. We have seen more than a 400% increase in illegitimate births. 
We've seen a quadrupling in divorce rates, a tripling of the number of kids living without both of their parents. We've seen more than a 200% increase in teen suicides. You can assess the state of corporate ethics, congressional cooperation, and environmental stewardship for yourself as to whether you believe they're going in a good direction or in a not-so-good direction as we have jettisoned God from our nation's life. It is time to come to our senses. It is time. It is time to reclaim the ancient wisdom. It is time to be students of history, to listen to the voices of the Moseses and the the Washingtons and the others that have bejeweled our history together. We have to remember that God has sown into the very fabric of life as dependably as he's created the laws of physics, these principles, these fundamental reliances and relationships, that God has created a fundamental linkage between freedom and accountability, between privilege and responsibility, between prosperity and hard work, between influence and integrity. We cannot truly thrive as a people without dependence upon God, without reliance upon his commandments. And strangely, this is something which many of the nations that are even now rising on the world scene seem to understand at a level that we as American people are in danger of forgetting. One of the most provocative books I've read in recent days is one that is written by the two editors from London's famed magazine, The Economist. In their groundbreaking new book, God is Back, the two authors chronicle the stunning rise of faith around the planet in our lifetime, and particularly the rise of the Christian faith in other parts of the globe. One of these writers, I should tell you, declares himself an atheist. Okay, so this is not one of these kind of biased books. This is a a serious study of what's happening around the world today. Particularly striking to the authors is the spectacular growth of the church in China right now. It's tremendous appeal to the educated business class there. The Christian faith is just explosively growing in the educated business class of China today. The authors cite a widely widely read essay by a very prominent Chinese economist by the name of Zhao Xiao. And Xiao makes a stunning assertion that is shared by many, many other thinking people in the developing world today. This is what Zhao writes. The key to America's commercial success, and and he's looking up to America. These leaders are looking up to America and saying, how do we get here what they have there? The key to America's commercial success is not its natural resources. It's not its financial system or its technology. It is the awe of God proclaimed in its churches. This was a secular, non-Christian man writing at the time. He's since become a Christian. The very core that binds Americans together is this awe of God, he believes. America's market economy, argues Zhao, is efficient because it is undergirded at its best by a system of moral laws derived from the nation's founding religion. 
This was 2002, before some of the tumult of our time. At the close of his essay, Zhao recounts traveling through North America's vast lands and hearing, and I quote, the serene sounds of church bells ringing in every church, bringing to his mind the words of an old Chinese poem he knew. And the poem went like this. Be in awe of the invincible might. Be in awe of the lightning. Be in awe of the thunder in the sky. For without this awe, Zhao contends to his fellow countrymen, China cannot succeed. Only through faith can the market economy have a soul. Only through faith, through awe, can we be saved, he writes. One can only wonder whether America will recover her once shining sense of awe in time. One can only wonder if America will recover her sense of awe for the God who has so richly and abundantly blessed her before God's thunder falls from the sky, as the scriptures promise it will, before his thunder comes from the sky to remove his blessing from us, the question is, will America once again remember him and revere his commandments? Can we learn to live in dependence upon him? I say, Yes. Yes, we can. And I say, let it begin this day with you and with me. Amen.